We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Good evening, offices of Wall Street and Broadway, hollowed ground, as David Kincaid just told us. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer. This show is in two parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. And if you guys have any questions about those, you can see one of our seminars coming up this week in Brooklyn. We're going to be at uh, Vesuvio's Restaurant on 3rd Avenue at 73rd Street and 3rd Avenue on Monday, March 27th at 11 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and 7 p.m. On Wednesday, March 29th, we're going to be in Buckley's on Avenue S and Nostrin Avenue again at 11, 3, and 7. Thursday, we're going to be in Park Slope at the Montour Club. If you haven't seen the club, you might want to take a look around the place. We're going to be there at 3 and 7. We're not doing 11 o'clock on March 30th at the Montour Club. We're doing 3 and 7. And the main thing that we talk about when we're talking about state planning elder law, most of the time is to talk about saving the house from nursing home bills. And the best way to do that is a trust. Now, Beth, you have Hello. some email questions. Yeah. I do. I've got several. Okay. All right. Um, the first one. Hi. My mother, aged 90 years old, currently lives in Flushing, worth about $900,000. She intends to leave it to me and my sister after she has passed. She recently received Medicaid, and I am disabled, receiving SSI and SSD. Also, Medicare and Emblem. I would like to know if the state will take my home when she passes, or can I inherit it? Thanks, Joe. Okay, well, obviously you can inherit it, but the problem is if things are not planned right, we could have some problems. One, we don't want the house to go through probate, because if it goes through probate and your mother's on Medicaid, they may put a lien on the house. We can avoid that by doing a trust. Now, I don't know... From the question, Joe, do you do you live in the house or not? But if you live in the house, we have a little bit more flexibility. If you're going to sell the house, then what we should do is set up a trust for the house or whatever other assets your mom has, and assume she's on Medicaid, she doesn't have a lot of other assets. We set up a trust for the house so your sister or somebody else can manage your share of the house if it's sold, and in that way protect your assets and let you keep your SSI and your Medicaid. But it should be planned, and it should be done God forbid, before your mother passes away. So the first step might be get a power of attorney done. The second step, put the house in a trust, 50-50, protect that house from mom's medical bills, and also protect it where you won't leave your benefits. And that's one of the misconceptions a lot of people have uh, in today's world. If somebody's on SSI, they say, well, I can't leave many assets. They're going to lose their benefits. Yes, you can leave them the assets, but you have to leave it to them indirectly. You have to leave those assets through a trust where somebody else manages the asset for that person. And that way they can leave the, they can keep their benefits. You can still leave them some assets. But you need to do the right planning. You, you know, too many people just uh, say, well, I'll name so-and-so as trustee, and we don't think about a backup. We want to think everything out. Plus, we've got to figure out if something happens to you, Joe, who gets your assets, you know, especially if you're going to live in the house for the rest of your life. 
All right, let's start taking some of the phone calls we have. Uh, first online is Lucy. Yes, Lucy, what's your question? Dad is 63 years old, and he just had a stroke. Um, everybody's telling my mom that um, she will lose everything if he is going to stay in the hospital for too long. Is there anything that we can do? Thank well, the first, you. First thing, if your father's competent, we'd want to do a, a power of attorney for him so we can sign his name. And if, if he's not competent, we may have to go to court and get a guardian appointed. Hopefully he's competent. But through today's laws with spouse refusal, if we can transfer virtually all the assets from husband and wife's name to wife's name, wife signs spouse refusal, then the husband get Medicaid and she won't lose a substantial amount of her assets. Do you know how much income there is? Okay, maybe I'll finish. And depending on the income, a nursing home, we may lose you know part of the income for nursing home bills. But you know th- that's one of the misconceptions that that people are too frightened of, scared of, and sometimes they don't act because they don't know. Let's say if husband has a stroke, if the husband's mentally alert and competent enough to sign a power of attorney, that's the first thing we want to do. If he doesn't have a power of attorney, we want a guardian appointed who can then sign his name. And that, and that's one of the reasons you want to do a power of attorney ahead of time. Because, you know, some people say, well, I don't need a power of attorney. I'm competent now. But the problem could be, you know, something happens. You don't have a power of attorney in place. And then we have to go to court and get a guardian appointed. And that's expensive and time-consuming. And sometimes it can, you know, when you're talking about $15,000 a month to a nursing home, every month that goes by, you lose $15,000 a month. Every day that goes by, you lose $500 a day. You don't really, if you want to protect your spouse, and you want to be protected in case your spouse gets sick, and assuming you trust your spouse, it's a, um, you know, you don't have, you're not on the edge of divorce or something like that, I would strongly recommend that you think about doing a PAV attorney. Ted in Northport. Yes, Ted. Yes, my question has to do with uh, Medicaid and reverse mortgages. I own I own my house, and if I got a reverse mortgage and say it's within the five year uh, look back period, and I had to go to a nursing home within those five years, but let's say I spent all of the money on the reverse mortgage paying off my children's college loans or law school loans, and we use some of the money for family vacations, um, Is would, would Medicaid look to try to get that money back because it wouldn't exist anymore? And if they tried to take the house, um, I imagine the reverse mortgage company would have a lien on it in priority. Yeah, well, first of all, the proceeds of a reverse mortgage are not usually subject to Medicaid liens. Because it's not really, oh. it's not really your house is exempt, and the proceeds from a mortgage from the house are exempt. Now, mm-hmm. the question would be, did you make gifts to your children? But if you were doing it to pay off loans and so forth, then it, you know, it's done for a reason other than to apply for Medicaid. So it should be all right as long as, uh, you know, it wasn't just a straight gift. And even if it was a straight gift, if it was done years ago, we should be all right. So, Should be all right. Now, do you know uh, if I wanted to do a uh, irrevocable trust, can I still do a reverse mortgage? I, I don't know if that would make sense. But. Yeah, well, it would make sense because at that point you could have two bills eating away at the equity of your house, the interest on the uh-huh. reverse mortgage and the nursing home bill. So, yes, it would uh-huh. be a good idea to put the house in Medicaid. And if you have any questions about that, you can speak to Frank Melia, who's one of the sponsors on the show, because his company, they whenever they have one of our trusts that's irrevocable, you know, they know exactly what to do and they put the house in a you know, they put the house in trust and you still can get a reverse mortgage. So oh. yes, if you're gonna get a reverse mortgage, you still should do a trust because one, you want to avoid probate. You don't want to delay in selling the house because after you're gone the interest is gonna build up. We wanna sell the house as soon as we can to pay mm-hmm. off the reverse mortgage. And two, we don't want the equity of the house to be squeezed in from two different angles. One, we're going to have the, um, you know, we're going to have the, the interest on the reverse mortgage, and the other one, we may have medical bills. And then mm-hmm. we don't want probate fees on top of that. So at least let's, right. if we put it in the trust, we should be sticking with the only, you know, thing eaten at our equity is the interest. And, of course, the reverse mortgage in, in some cases is great because it allows to sell, uh, let senior citizens stay in their house. You know, you take out a mm-hmm. regular loan, 
you don't pay the loan off, you could lose your house. You take off mm-hmm. a reverse, you take out a reverse mortgage, you can stay in the house for the rest of your life. You have mm-hmm. to pay your real estate taxes and so forth. But it, mm-hmm. it is a good product for a lot of people. It's not for everybody. And one of the myths out there, if I take out a reverse mortgage, I lose my house. No. If the equity of the house keeps going up, you don't lose your house. Yes, you do have to pay interest and you have to pay the loan back either after you pass away. Most of the time, our clients, it's usually after they pass mm-hmm. away or when you sell the house. Mm-hmm. All right, Ted, thank you for... Okay. Uh, thank you very much. I hope much. you don't have too many law school loans out there. <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay. All right. We're going to take... Uh, short break. And then at the end of the other break, we're going to be talking about the Civil War Roundtable. Now, tonight, we're going to be talking history. We're going to be talking to Tom Clavin, who's one of my favorite authors. He's got a book out, Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, Wickedest Town in the American West. Now, unfortunately, he's right now, he's in Huntington doing a book signing. So we're going to announce that during his time. But we, we taped the interview a little bit earlier. But I learned a little bit, especially about Bat Masterson, you know, and and both Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson lived into the 20th centuries, which was one of the things that, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know. And, Beth, one thing I learned about this is that Bat Masterson was a friend of Victor McLaughlin at the uh, the later part of his his life, you know, when he was in New York in the 1920s. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, among among other people, but John McGraw. That's cool. Victor McLaughlin, yeah. So, and those of you who don't remember, we uh, Victor McLaughlin, his son Andrew V. McLaughlin was on our show years ago. I guess about five, six years ago. He's passed away now, about three years. And then his son Josh McLaughlin was on our show. And Josh McLaughlin is producer of uh, a lot of the movies like X Men, uh, Night at the Museum. Uh, you know, I just over St. Patrick's Day this past St. Patrick's Day, I watched The Informer with Victor McLaughlin, and that is just a heartbreaking movie. All right, so at the end of the break, we're we're going to be talking a little bit about the Civil War and the Civil War Roundtable. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife Beth. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, March 27th at Vesuvio Restaurant, 7305 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. On Wednesday, March 29th at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue. U.S. in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. and at the Montauk Club, 25 8th Avenue in Park Slope, Brooklyn on Thursday, March 30th at 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. 
Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, well, Beth, I think you have another email question, don't you? I, I do indeed. Okay. All right. My husband and I need to rewrite our wills. We have four children. I want to ensure that if I die before my husband, he gets the money. But if he remarries, then dies, I want my half to end up with my children and not a new spouse or the children that the new spouse had previously or even with my husband. How can I safeguard that any new wife would not reap the rewards of what we have built? And my children will get something from my estate. I didn't hear the word house in that question, but I assume that to talk, she's talking about the house, the deed to the house. She doesn't talk, nothing's mentioned what type of asset. But she says all the money goes to the husband. Right. She wants everything to go to the husband and then her children. Yeah. And nobody else. Okay. So what we can do, and, and of course, if assuming the husband and wife are both on the deed, we we would talk about a trust agreement, and the trust agreement would say that obviously both parents or the survivor could live in the house as long as they're alive, and then depending on what the agreement was, that at least half the house has to go to the children, or the whole house has to go to the children. Um, and, and again, you got to be careful what you ask for because you don't know who's going to die first, who's going to you know survive. But yes, you can do a trust agreement that says the house goes, the house must go to our children. At least half the house must go to our children. At least a third of the house, two-thirds of the house has to go to our children. So that can be done in a trust agreement and also would avoid probate. And, you know, one of the advantages of a trust agreement, if you do an irrevocable trust, if you want to sell or transfer the property, we can have it in such a way that one of the children has to sign the trust agreement with the parent. So that way that sometimes senior citizens, especially if they live to be in their 90s, they start signing documents they shouldn't really sign, like maybe putting their spouse's name on a deed when the the husband's 95 and the, the wife is 60 and she's the home attendant. Maybe it's not a bad idea to, to a trust where the property cannot be transferred without one of the trustees, one of the children, signing on to it. And, you know, and there, there are also other things. Sometimes they're con men that do contracts on home repairs or whatever, and they do home repairs, and they say, sign here. It's not going to cost you anything more. And then you ha- you sign a mortgage. That's one of the advantages of an irrevocable trust. It can't be transferred unless one of the, let's say in this case, children sign off on it. So at least they know that the parents are you know, protected. Now, I mean, the other side of the coin, some of the, some of the parents may say, hey, wait a minute. I don't want to be in partnership with my kids. Well, that's something we got to talk about. And there's no one right answer for everybody. But if you want to protect your house and you want to protect, you know, in the question that Ann just gave us, then we do an irrevocable trust, and one of the kids would have to sign off on the deed and make sure that the parents' original wishes were followed. I think we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Steve, we'll get to your question in a minute. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Okay, well, okay, we got Steve holding online here. Steve, what's your question? Yes. How you doing, Mike? How are you, right? Okay. All right, here's the thing. I got uh, four siblings, and uh, I couldn't put my name on my mother's house right away because I had to pay off some debt. Paid the debt off, and now I want to add my name on the house, and my siblings, brother, sister won't allow it. Uh, they said, nah, don't worry about it. You'll get your cup when the time comes, you know, when my mother passes on and all that. But now I'm trying to get it on. They won't allow it. Is there anything I can do? What, is, what does your mother say? My mother is off the house now because signed, she signed it over. But what does she say? What my she mother said yes to do it, but uh, the other group don't want it. They got their own reason, which was ridiculous. They couldn't really come up with an answer. Ah, you're off the house. Don't worry. You're going to get your cut. I don't trust them. So well, I want to know if it doesn't. It doesn't sound story. right. The first thing I would do is your mother should probably tell the other children. Now, we the way I would do it was do it in the trust, and the other children can sign an agreement saying when the house is sold. Yeah, they ha- won't do that either. Why? That's the reason I don't even know why. Even my mother said it the other day. Okay. My mother says put the name on there. They said no. I leave it alone, ma. It's it's good the way it is. It's like my mother got fed up with it because they are not even listening to her. How many years I don't ago? trust them. I, I don't want to lose my part. I understand that. How many years ago did your mother uh, sign the deed? Four, and I'm the fifth. How many years ago did your mother sign the deed? Oh, she signed it over uh, about six, seven years ago. Okay. I mean, I don't want to do this, and I might threaten it, but I, we'd have to talk to your mother. But saying that she turned the house over to the kids under what we call a constructive trust, in other words, that they were holding the house for you. Now... It just makes sense. That's the way it was. But the earlier that gets done, the better for you. But your mother has to really say, you know, she's got to be the driving force and say, you know, I wanted the house to go five ways and then see what the children do if your mother signs a letter and gets yeah. sent out. Yeah, we, we we went all through that already. Even with a lawyer, they still they still have okay. they don't want they don't want it. Done. The solution we don't like to go to court, but the solution is to go to court to declare a constructive trust on the house that it really belongs to all to, five ways. Is there a way to go around it? There's no way to go around. Oh. I'd have to see the deed. Maybe there's something there in the papers because I'm not 100 percent sure because I don't have the deed in front of me. I don't have whatever papers may have been signed. But so I- yes, there there's certain things we can do. But the solution is to go to court. Your mother goes to court and said, I wanted all five kids, and we just put it in four names and go from there. All right, but it can be done. Even if they say no, it still can be done in court. Yeah, but you may have to go to court. But Provided my mother's still alive. Yeah, well, you got to – I mean, after she's gone, it's going to be very hard to prove. Yeah. Maybe I could bring the deed in to show you the deed at one of these places. You're going to be at Buckley's? Yeah, I'm going to be in Buckley's. I'm not sure if that's the best. Yeah, you can come there, but I don't, I'm not sure that's the best place to talk about it because there are a lot of other people oh, okay. in the room. But, you know, I'm, I'm in the Brooklyn office. Where do you live in Brooklyn? I live down in East Sloppish. Are you uh, Borough Hall, downtown Brooklyn? No, we're in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. That's you can no go problem. to Buckley's and we'll schedule an appointment if you want. Go from there. Bring me a copy of the deed and whatever the other papers may be from your mom. 
I you, appreciate that. You can go one of the things I'm about, but I'll only be able to talk to you for two to three minutes, and there's going to be a lot of other people around, and no, some of those people uh, have a tendency I'll, have a tendency to listen uh, to what you're saying. Either way, I'll make an appointment with you maybe down in your office. Okay, very good. Good luck, Steve. Thank you. Okay, take care. All right, Civil War Roundtable's coming up April 12th. And who's going to be the speaker, Beth? Ed Bars. Yeah, now Ed Bars is, you know, one of a kind. We had an interview with Ed Bars, which we're going to be playing a little bit uh, later in this year. And uh, Ed Bars, a lot of people think he only knows about the Civil War, but Ed Bars knows about every battle in the history of civilization. And... (laughs) He, we were talking about him coming up to New York for the, you know, the April twelfth meeting. You can take a tour of the battle, or you can drive down. There is so a, a large obelisk monument there uh, to commemorate the battle. Ed, thank you very much. We'll see you at the Civil War Roundtable in April. See you yeah, in New York I look soon. Yeah, to seeing you. And remember who we, who who played. Uh, uh, Pat Palsy got a uh, part in my report to you i'll tell him that i'm sure he'll be pleased he's always interested in getting good press he would be much better being uh him than uh ap hill <laughs> does he ever does he ever confide to you that ap hill had gonorrhea yes he's told me that many times <laughs> yes uh, yes <laughs> i always like to kid him about it <laughs> Well, he's a good sport, so we'll all oh, see. Yeah, he takes it well. We'll I, I, I always miss Pat. Well, I'll see you all there yeah, because on, uh, I got, in, uh, in April. Okay, so now that's Ed Bars. You never know, quite know what he's going to say. And, of course, he's referring to our good buddy Pat Fauci, who played General A.P. Hill in the movie Gettysburg. And when Ed Bars was talking about New Orleans, he says when they film, when they do the next film about the battle in new orleans pat fauci can play colonel mullen of the british forces that attacked new orleans in 1815 oh my goodness <laughs> but if you want to meet pat fauci and you want to meet ed bars and see him in the same room come see us on april 12th at the three west club three west 51st street the cost to non-members is 60 dollars. you get a three-course meal and like I said, I love the New York Historical Society. I go to their meetings all the time. But in some cases, you're paying $45, $50. You're sitting in a chair for an hour. You don't get to meet the speaker, and you don't get a three-course meal. At the Civil War Roundtable, you can meet Ed Bars. You can talk to Ed Bars. You can, again, you get a three-course meal. It's a and fun we're going to have his book, so he'll sign his book for you. Most importantly, you can talk to him. So if you want reservations to the Civil War Roundtable on April 12th, Give a call at 718-341-9811. 718-341-9811. You might even be lucky enough to speak to Pat Fauci, depending on who answers the <laughs> phone that day. So we're looking forward to Ed Bars, and he's going to be talking about Grierson's Raid. And, Beth, you had a couple of relatives in Grierson's Raid, correct? I did. These were uncles. This was um, my direct ancestor. Their brother was – they were unionists. And they were Mississippians, and um, they were conscripted into the Confederacy, and then eventually um, were with the North. And as you know, with Grierson's raid, they had Confederates in Confederate uniforms helping them along the way. Right. They had Southerners in Confederate uniforms who acted as the scouts. Yeah. And Ed will probably be talking about that on April 12th. By the way, it's a sad note, and... You know, Maurice Walsh, who one time when we did a, a seminar or a speech on the, the horse soldiers passed away, and he was a great artist. He used to do all these Civil War prints of the different generals and things like that. So, um, you know, if if his wife's listening or any of the guys out there in Breezy Point, you know, we miss him because he made that meeting that night when we were talking about Grierson's raids and the right. Butterneck Gorillas when he started singing the song about the horse soldiers. That's right. All right, let's take a break, and then we're going to be talking to Tom Clavin, Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, the wickedest town in the American West. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. 
Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan, plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. About a year ago on, we had Yo O'Brien, who played Wyatt Earp on TV for years and years. And a lot of people my age, that's who Wyatt Earp is, Yo O'Brien. But, you know, sometimes TV and films don't quite get history right. And so to help try to get us on the right track, we have Tom Clavin, who has a book out, Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the Wickedest Town in the American West. How are you doing today? Fine. Thanks for having me on the show. We know what the book is about. Why did you write the book, and, and what can the audience learn from reading it? You know, I started this book mostly because I was interested in Bat Masterson, which sounds a little blasphemous because Wyatt Earp usually gets all the oxygen. But uh, I, Bat Masterson really intrigued me, partly because, you know, in, in films, uh, he's, he, if he's portrayed at all, it's sort of like a second banana as, uh, you know, almost like an afterthought or kind of a, a, a clownish kind of a, a sec assistant to Wyatt Earp. But Matt Masterson had a fascinating career that began, you know, being being born. Actually, uh, he was born in Canada, but he never revealed that. Uh, he always claimed to be born in Illinois. And, uh, and he became a lawman. He became a sheriff. He actually outranked Wyatt Earp when they were in Dodge City lawmen together. And, uh, but, but, his years in Dodge City, I got intrigued because that's when he and Wyatt Earp became best friends. They were both still very young men. They were both in their twenties, and and uh, they they it was not just them. It was the Masterson brothers. You know, there were five Masterson brothers, and there were six Earp brothers. So it's like the Earps and the Mastersons teamed up to uh, to sort of clean up Dodge City, and and that interested me because you you mentioned Hugh O'Brien, and and yes, he's so identified with the Wyatt Earp television show. Uh, but I was very interested in Wyatt Earp pre-Tombstone, before the OK Corral, which is what he's most known for. This is when he was still a young lawman, and he and Bat became best friends and, and wore a badge together and were really just making it up as they went along how to bring law and order to the wickedest town in the West. Now, why do you say it was the wickedest town in the West? And what years are we talking about? We're talking about from about the time that it became incorporated, 1872, when it was when it was uh, the railroad got there and things really got going in Dodge City. Because then, once the railroad came in, you could start uh, all these cattle would come up from Texas and they'd be shipped out of Dodge City, and uh, you know all these cowboys would be coming through in increasing numbers with lots of money in their pockets from being at the end of the trail drive. And uh, the saloons, uh, the dance halls, uh, the there was there was very little law and order, really, because, uh, you know, cowboys would like to ride through the streets and shoot their guns in the air and sometimes at each other and sometimes at, at whatever lawman was foolish enough to come out in the open and try and stop them. And so, I mean, there's, there's a, a, a joke that I include in the book that uh, this, this guy was, uh, uh, was on a train. He looked pretty down in the dumps, and the conductor came over to him and said, where are you going, buddy? And the guy said, oh, I'm going to hell. And the conductor said, well, two more stops, Dodge City, get off there. <laughs> Let's start with Bat Masterson. 
before Dodge City, what was his career? Well, he was a buffalo hunter, and that's how he and Wyatt are met. Uh, you know, one of the ways for a young man, especially Bat, who from the time that he was a kid was an excellent uh, rifle shooter, he was a great marksman, and uh, he was the one that sort of protected his younger brothers when they would go back and forth to school uh, in in in, in uh, Kansas. And um, when uh, when Bat went buffalo hunting with one of his brothers, uh, you can make a lot of money. First of all, because there were tons of buffalo. And so it was not that hard to go find them, and if you were a good marksman like that was, shoot them and kill them. And the market for buffalo meat and hides uh, and tongues and other things like that back east was very, very high. So uh, that's what he did. He was a buffalo hunter, and it was, it was bloody, dirty work. And he, that's where he first met Wyatt, and they first became friends because, again, for a young man, that was a way to make some fast money. And uh, it was while Bat was based, taking a break from buffalo hunting, he became an army ranger for a bit, and he came back and... They basically uh, said to Bat, hey, we need a little bit of help in Dodge City. And Bat said, well, I've got nothing else to do at the moment. I, you know, I'll help you out. And that began, became his, his lawman career. What were their official titles? Well, Wyatt Earp uh, has, has often been portrayed in, in books and especially in movies as the marshal of Dodge City, which, which he never was. Uh, he never got higher than assistant marshal, but he was basically the, the top guy because the marshal was just a figurehead. So, so he was mostly uh, assistant marshal Wyatt Earp, and then uh, Bat Masterson had been elected. Uh, he was only, I think, 22 years old when he got elected the sheriff of Ford County. And Ford County, Kansas, includes Dodge City. So Bat had the entire county that he was a lawman of. So he was really the top lawman in the area. And he and Wyatt combined to, uh, you know, there would be some bad guys coming through, and, and they'd go on uh, posses together and round up other, you know, deputized people, and they'd, they'd, uh, they'd chase some of these bad guys down and, and, and throw them in jail. Okay. Now, one of the things I realize is that they didn't really shoot and kill a lot of people when they were in law. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that, uh, that the, I talk about in my book, Dodge City, is that uh, you know, both men, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, in their later years had these reputations as bloodthirsty killers. And Bat Masterson, in fact, in his New York years, it, it had this pistol, this, this Colt 45, that had 22 notches on it, supposedly for every man he had killed. But they really didn't. I mean, one reason was, you know, lawmen didn't get paid very much. You know, their life expectancy wasn't long and their salary was not high on the frontier in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. And so they would get also, they would get paid, they would supplement their income by they would get a bonus like two dollars and fifty cents per arrest now if the guy was dead you didn't get paid so you had to figure out a way if the situation was dangerous and somebody was doing something they weren't supposed to do how do i how do i disarm this guy how do i arrest this guy how do i subdue this guy without killing him so uh that's what they had to do they had to outsmart these guys they had to maybe hit them first before they got hit uh Wyatt Earp was an expert in a practice called buffaloing which means and he was taller than most other guys so uh, if somebody looked like they, things were going to get dangerous before the guy could do anything, right? Why would take out the butt of his gun and bash him over the top of the head with it, knock him out, and the guy would wake up the next morning in jail with a really bad headache, and Wyatt Earp would be two dollars and fifty cents richer. Where if he shot him, he would get nothing. What's that? If he shot him, yeah. If, if, if he killed if you, him, if, yeah. you kill, if you killed him, you, there was, no, you know, there was no money there. So, so you really had to, you know, killing was a very, very last, last resort for the for the better lawmen. I mean, there were certainly a lot of lousy lawmen on the frontier who didn't really know what they were doing and were pretty sadistic themselves. But, but that was one of the things that Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson brought to the frontier: a sense of, you know, the best way for law and order is not to kill somebody, but but arrest, subdue them, disarm them. Nobody gets hurt and put them in jail. Do you have one good story, you know, that just illustrates what they were doing at that time? Well, there's a, there's a good story about uh, when when there had been a a, a robbery and uh, that and well, there was actually somebody killed and and uh, there was an attempt made to shoot the mayor and by mistake the person shot uh, the mayor's uh, clandestine girlfriend and killed her. And took off on this uh, super fast horse, and uh, Bat uh, and Wyatt deputized a couple of guys, and the and the four of them set off. And uh, they were going through snow, through rain, through everything, and they they basically figured out where the guy was going, and and outran him through the night to be waiting for him uh, when he when he got there. And even then, the guy the guy pulled his gun, and Bat from horseback with a rifle, he's an excellent marksman. Uh, you know, wounded the guy in the shoulder, knocked the, knocked the gun right out of his hand and wounded the guy in the shoulder, and they arrested him, brought him back to Dodge City, threw him in jail. The guy was eventually tried for murder. And that, I think, is an illustration of the kind of stuff they did. They, Bat and Wyatt were, were um, 
relentless in, in trying to capture somebody. And I think that's also what made them good, what good lawmen. It made for some exciting adventures because they would, they, would, they would outride and they could outshoot people, but not necessarily shoot to kill. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, March 27th at Vesuvio Restaurant, 7305 Third Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. On Wednesday, March 29th at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue. U.S. in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. and at the Montauk Club, 25 8th Avenue in Park Slope, Brooklyn on Thursday, March 30th at 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Our guest right now is Tom Clavin. We're talking about his book, Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the Wickedest Town in the American West. We've got these two guys. How long are they in Dodge City? They were in Dodge City from approximately 1875 to 1878, 79, you know, three or four years. Not that long. uh, You know, it's not like they had this long career, but that's because, you know, partly because they were successful. You know, Dodge City was kind of cleaned up by the time that they left. And partly because, like I mentioned, they were they were young men. They, they, these were guys who were still looking for adventure. Their lives were ahead of us. They wanted to make money. You know, Wyatt always was dying to be a successful businessman and get rich. Bat, not so much. Bat was more in the adventure of things. And and so when Wyatt left, it was to eventually end up in Arizona with with his brothers Virgil and Morgan, and end up in Tombstone, where he thought that they were going to go into business and, and make a lot of money. He was once again wrong about that. Uh, and they ended up getting in, you know, getting in a big fight instead. Uh, Bat was somebody who just liked gambling and adventure, and he ended up going to Colorado and other places. And what the book details is that they were not done with Dodge City, though, because there was something in 1883 called the Dodge City War. And basically this faction moved in that wanted to undo all the law and order that had been built up over the years. And one particular guy uh, was, was being threatened with being killed, who was a friend of, of Bat Masterson's and Wyatt Earp. And he sent out telegrams and saying, hey, guys, I need help. And that's an important uh, part of the book, that Bat and Wyatt reunited in Dodge City. You know, when Bat Masterson got off a train that morning in June 1883, you know, Wyatt Earp was waiting for him, handed him a shotgun, and they started down the street together for one more time, going to clean up Dodge City. What happened? Well, they uh, people started coming out of the woodwork saying, well, you know, th- we'll help you, Wyatt, we'll help you, Bat. And the, the new administration, the mayor, the, the sheriff, the marshal, all the, the, the new uh, police folks, now, Wyatt said to him, you know, uh, you guys are going to have 24 hours, and either you guys get out of town or we're going to start shooting. They got out of town. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they, they did not want to mess with – they, they couldn't believe their eyes. They're looking at the, down the road at the street at the railroad station, and there's, there's like uh, something out of the past, these legendary lawmen. By this point, legendary lawmen, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, shoulder to shoulder, carrying guns and coming right for them. They said, we don't want any part of this. And they said, you, 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 you win. We're leaving. All right, so after Dodge City, you, you touched upon it, Wyatt Earp goes to Tombstone. Everybody, I think, knows the Tombstone story. What does he do after that, after he finishes being a lawman? Well, Wyatt and his fourth wife, uh, who he got together with in Tombstone, uh, Wyatt had four wives, sometimes a couple of them at the same time. He was always kind of murky about his legal entanglements when it came to women. Uh, but Wyatt and his fourth, fourth wife basically took off, and they spent decades traveling for one business venture after another, sometime in, in connection with his brothers like Virgil and Morgan, of course, died in Tombstone, uh, Warren, another brother. 
he was always looking for that get-rich-quick scheme, and it didn't happen. Uh, he eventually ended up spending the rest of his years living in uh, Hollywood, uh, living in Los Angeles, and uh, being a consultant on uh, some westerns. Uh, John Ford, early in his career, employed Wyatt Earp as a as a consultant. And, of course, many years later, he, in My Darling Clementine, he had Henry Fonda playing Wyatt Earp. Uh, Bat Masterson had, uh, he became a, a sportsman, uh, entrepreneur, boxing referee, uh, hunter, rancher. Uh, he became close friends with a young Teddy Roosevelt when Roosevelt spent a couple of years in the Dakotas as a rancher. And that was important because when Roosevelt became president and Bat Masterson had enough with the, with the West, and, uh, Roosevelt said, listen, why don't you come to New York City and I'll make you a uh, deputy U.S. marshal and you can use that salary and just hang out. Bat said, that sounds good. So he and his wife, Bat Masterson, when he, he met the one woman who would become his wife, and they'd be together for the rest of his life. Uh, he came to New York, and most people don't know that Bat spent almost the next the last 20 years of his life as a New York City newspaper reporter. Yeah, so here we are, 1900, 1903 or whatever, Bat Masterson's in New York City, uh, New York Telegraph, right? Yes, he did. He becomes a... Uh, he, he so enjoyed New York City, and he became a, co- a newspaper reporter and columnist. He would write about Broadway. He'd write about sports. He could pretty much write about whatever he wanted to, and he would go to the boxing matches, go up to the polo grounds to see the New York Giants play, and write his columns. He would hang out at saloons in New York and tell stories. And Again, people saw Bat Masterson as this uh, legendary killer you know, who had tamed the West with, with smoking six guns, and he had helped tame the West, but it wasn't so much with smoking six guns. You touched upon it that he met John Ford. Years later, John Ford did My Darling Clementine. Is there yes. any part of where history and that movie come together? Not really. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, My Darling Clementine is a really good movie. I don't want to take anything away from it. I but, agree. But, but uh, you know, the, the, much of the story that it tells about the OK Corral is just not true. Uh, you know some of the strange things that go on. There you have you have uh, Victor Mature is playing Doc Holliday, and 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 Doc dies before the gunfight at the OK Corral, and they have Virgil Earp as as Wyatt's younger brother when he's actually his older brother. And I don't know why. And I, this is one of the things that that why I really enjoyed writing the book and and wanted to write the book is because for some inexplicable reason uh, a lot of times filmmakers changed the stories of Wyatt Earp and Bat Masters and especially Wyatt Earp and took liberties with it or just eliminated characters added characters and when you find out what really these guys did and especially in those Dodge City days it was a very very exciting life with a lot of adventures and guys who would be coming to town you know there was a guy named named uh, uh, Allison that came Clay Allison that came to town with the express purpose of finding and killing Wyatt Earp and what he didn't know when he confronted Wyatt Earp is right across the street with a shotgun on his back was Bat Masterson. You know, there's, there's real things that happened. And Jesse, uh, Bat Masterson became good friends with Frank and Jesse James, and they would get together when the James brothers came through Dodge City, even though Bat was a sheriff. Uh, there's a lot of really fun, uh, accurate, true stories that make you wonder why they changed things in the first place when the truth is, in this case, so much more interesting than fiction. Of the films that you have seen, what one do you think, either touching on Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, or both, is the most historically accurate? You know, it's hard to say with Bat Masterson because, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, he is such a marginal supporting character in any of these Westerns, if he appears at all. Uh, with Wyatt, um, you know, there's, there's again, you, the stories of Wyatt Earp are all tombstone-related. Uh, so you have My Darling Clementine. You have, there was uh, one that was made with Burt Lancaster as Wyatt Earp, and Kirk Douglas uh, as 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 Doc Holliday. Um, there was the the one with with Val Kilmer and Kurt Russell, uh, the wider movie uh, with Val Kilmer, who's probably the best Doc Holliday on screen. Was Val Kilmer? Uh, that one that one's pretty good. But you know, you're you're really hard pressed to find anything that's been done that accurately presents. Uh, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson in Dodge City. That tends to be, that's why, big reason why I wrote the book, that tends to be completely overlooked. And it's so important a part of not only their lives, but, but uh, American Western history. Why do you think Bat Masterson was so overlooked? I mean, relatively. You know, he didn't acquire, when, when, when Wyatt Earp was, was, got more legendary in his later years because people would approach him about doing his biography and, uh, Sometimes Wyatt would cooperate for a little while, sometimes not, and sometimes people just go ahead and write what they wanted to write. 
So uh, there was a book that came out called uh, Wyatt Earp Frontier Marshall that appeared a couple of years after Wyatt's death. And uh, some of it's true, a lot of it's not, and it really created this legendary lawman and, and bloodthirsty legendary lawman that Wyatt Earp was, was not. He was a legendary lawman to, in one way, but, but not the kind of gunfighter that, that he, he later on had been portrayed. And so Wyatt got that kind of treatment. Uh, Bat did not. Bat was sort of receded into the mists of, of history, and I'm kind of hoping that this book, uh, he's really kind of a heroic character, and he had a longer and more and more productive lawman career than Wyatt Earp did, so I'm kind of hoping that while people are enjoying the stories of all their adventures, they'll also get an appreciation for Bat Masterson, who really hasn't gotten his due in American history. And just to repeat this, because some people may not realize, both these men lived into the 20th century. They did. Uh, Wyatt uh, Bat lived, uh, what, in 1921. Bat was at his desk at the New York Telegraph. He finished writing one of his columns. And basically, he typed the, the last word and slumped over dead at his typewriter, which is a way that some <laughs> some journalists would like to go. And uh, in Wyatt's case, he lived, uh, he was, I think, 80 uh, in 1929 he lived. So he, he lived almost right into the right into the 1930s. Uh, and so, they yes, they both saw the, the, the 20th century and, and uh uh, you know, had had really full lives that that began really with with being lawmen in Dodge City. Okay, so the name of the book, Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the Wickedest Town in the American West. I understand, Tom, you have a book signing out on East Hampton, New York, at Bookhampton. That's on March twenty fifth. March twenty five, uh, East, East Hampton, Bookhampton, and people can call there for details. It's probably going to be about five o'clock that afternoon, and. I hope to see folks there because I'll be telling a bunch of stories from the book and, of course, signing copies. All right. Well, we look forward to that. You know, I know you, you did some stories about baseball, so if, yeah, I, I'd like to talk about your baseball books at some time. But thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Again, the name of the book, Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, The Wickedest Town in the American West by Tom Clavin. And we're going to be talking baseball with Tom Clavin sometime in, in April. Beth, I know you... You always loved the you O'Brien White Earp, but you weren't too crazy about the Gene Barry Bat Masterson. I don't know why. I just can't stand that Gene Barry. I mean, I couldn't stand him as Bat Masterson, and I couldn't stand him in War of the Worlds. So poor Gene Barry. <laughs> just, I just don't like him. Well, he he was not convincing. He just whapped somebody. He didn't look athletic. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Well, and is he a Brooklyn guy? Did I get that right? I think I know he's from the New York area, and of course, Bat Masterson ended up in New York, so I guess that's uh, I guess you know that's appropriate okay. or whatever. But you know, Bat Masterson was part of the nightlife in New York City in the early 1900s, so we probably know somebody who knew him and met him in person. Well, think- listen, in Bay Ridge, you've got. Um- uh, Diamond Jim Brady town with Lillian Russell. So, David yeah. Kincaid saying goodnight. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away.